Luke 15. <laughs> We're going to begin this morning, and this has been a message I've wanted to share for, for kind of for a while now, and, and in some ways this message is shared every time we come to the Eucharist, every time we come to the communion table. It's a, it's a reminder of God's grace, a word that we get so close to and become so sometimes familiar with, that it can actually lose its power, it can lose its, its weight. And so I want to walk through some passages, and I want to encourage us as we're hearing especially some of these, these parables, Jesus tells these stories. I want to encourage us this morning to hear them with fresh ears. I want to encourage us to say, well, all right, if I were hearing this for the first time, which maybe some of you are, but a lot of you, you'll have heard these stories before. Like, How, how does this catch me? Uh, what, what's happening in my own heart when I actually hear this about who God says, Jesus is saying that God is? Luke 15. We'll start just by rereading what uh, Brad actually just read to us. Jesus told them a parable. Suppose one of you had a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country? And go after the lost sheep until he finds it. When he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. And if you grew up in a Christian home, Anyone have a, 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 a painting that's coming to your head, like right now? Come on, how many? For real. How many? Yeah. <laughs> yes, we all have the same painting. It's just Jesus like, looking really stoic and really white, right? Yeah. Man. Christian culture. And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Is that Thomas Kincaid? No. Then he, yeah, he's more houses and deer, less Jesus. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. I found my lost sheep. I found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who do not need to. There's another story. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? When she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of angels of God over one sinner who repents. The thrust in the story, the hinge, is on the thing that's being lost. The driving motivation of the shepherd, the driving motivation of the woman, is the lostness. It's the lostness. Now, there's, there's a part on the end of both of these stories about the response, then, of the, of the person or of the, 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 the analogous relationship between the lost thing and this action of repenting, which we'll get to. But the center, and we're going to see as we get to the third story in this chapter, all have to do first and foremost with the lostness. This 
is what drives them. Luke 15, verse 11. Even though these captions and titles, if you're looking at a Bible, weren't in there when this was first written, you can see why the, the, the people, the committee, the council that decided to label these, labeled them the way that they did. The parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the story of the lost coin, and the parable of the lost son. There's a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. We've talked a lot about this story. Right? This is a story that begins with a son basically saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. I do not want a relationship with you. Give me your will now. That'd be offensive in our day. We're like on a, off the charts at the time that this story would have been told. Absolutely offensive. Hey, Dad, could you just give me your, your, my inheritance now? I know you're not dead. But could we just like, you know, pretend? And I'll take this now and go. This is how the story begins. We learn that the younger son goes off, squanders his wealth, makes a series of really unfortunate decisions. He chooses a way of death. And whether you grew up around church or not, you kind of know the story of the prodigal son or you've heard someone say, like, oh, he's such a prodigal. There's something about when, when we've seen family members or friends of family when they've run off. It's always the middle kid, right? Any middle kids in the room? Yeah, how many of you are all like textbook prodigals? You're really offended right now, I know, but I'm right. <laughs> Walk off, they choose death. And he comes back to his father. And before anything else, son hasn't done anything. We read through the story. He hasn't apologized yet. We know kind of the speech that he's going to give. He hasn't even gotten to the house yet. We don't know how long, right? Jesus doesn't give us a time frame, but he went off in enough time to squander everything he had. And in this tale, he says, and then this son comes back home. And while he was still a long way off, the father, who's been treated like trash, who's been wished dead, comes running up the road and hugs and embraces and holds the son. Son hasn't done anything before he can say, I've changed. Before he apologizes, there's no like religious act like uh, of repentance or penitence. There's nothing. There's just dad running up the road to embrace the son who doesn't deserve it. Lost sheep, lost coin, and this lost son. Why do the shepherd, why does the woman, why do they go looking? Why do they go looking? they were lost, because the coin was lost, because the sheep was lost. Why does the father run up the road? The thrust, the, or maybe a better way to say it, but the impetus for movement is, is on the, the person who is going after the lost 
thing. This is where the energy in the story is. Famous scholar Robert Capon says this, these stories these par- are parables of grace and grace only. There is in them not one single note of earning or merit, not one breath about rewarding the rewardable, correcting the correctable, or improving the improvable. Maybe we could say it this way. God's determination, God has a determination to move before we do. These stories are about God's determination to move before we do. The point is about God moving before the sheep, the coin, or the younger son have any space to react, to come home. It'd be an odd story about a coin coming home, but you get where I'm going. God's determination to move before we do. And so if we miss this, we miss grace. Unmerited favor is one definition I particularly like. Unmerited favor. A favor, a blessing, a forness that, that wasn't merited, not deserved. God's determination to move before we do. So we see this fleshed out in the early church, making sense of these stories and and so much more that we could actually talk about about the person of Jesus. Romans 5, 6 to 8, I think part of this is on the screen. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Christ died for those that wanted nothing to do with him. Christ died for those who were perpetually choosing death. God died for those that choose to not ignore him. God died for those that didn't even know that he died for them. Verse 8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now we're heading into a season of Lent, and we use the word sin a lot during Lent. And sin for a lot of us, even those of us that are here and are Christians, is an uncomfortable word. And as I, as I repeat ad nauseum, when Christians talk about sin, I just don't know any better way to say this, we are not trying to be downers, we're not trying to have a negative, primal, archaic view of the world, we're just not also trying to go the other way and kind of Oprah this thing. I love Oprah, a lot of good things to say. But we know there's an ideology that sits in both of these worlds of like, this fundamentalist world where we are nothing but, it's almost like the Bible starts in Genesis 3, which for those of you who are new is like the story of sin entering in the world, the story of death. So we either beat ourselves up or or there's this weird sense of like, no, 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 you're good, like you're good because you say you're good and you have all like every, like you don't really do anything bad, you're just growing. That's a simplification. But we know these tensions where when we talk about sin, one definition we use are, are beautiful passions that God's given us that have gone awry. Good and holy desires, like the use of money, like relationships, and sex, and food, and we could go down the list of just all the things that just are in the world, right? C.S. Lewis said, the devil never invented a pleasure, 
Never. Everything. That God made the world good, and that's definitive in all of it. All that we have done has jacked it up because we don't choose to engage, steward, live in, and walk in the good things that God's given us in the way that God has showed us to do that. And so we recognize we have all these desires and all of these energies that get skewed. They've gone awry. We've placed them above God, right? This is what idolatry is. And, and this passage says, while we were still, like, in that place, like, defined by that, like, that was all we sort of saw that we, we, were, we were. In some, like, historical cosmic sense, it's like, before you were even born, knowing how jacked up even our own biology is, right? Romans says the earth is groaning. Some of those people are like, man, if you're a Christian, I don't know how you can believe like in a good God when you got the whole world is so messed up. It's like actually our text talks about that that is the reality of the world and that's actually not on God but on us. That's on system upon system. That's on the reality that we participate in all sorts of ways known and unknown in choosing death. And so in light of all of this, we recognize that God in this text, if we're to trust this, if we're to trust this, says, actually, while you were still sinners, before you even had a firm understanding of how messed up you really were, I died for you. That's why my daughter, um, who is not quite um, aware and awake enough in her consciousness to get any of this, I can say with confidence, uh, Jesus, Jesus loves you. You know who loves you more than mommy and daddy? Why did I get Southern right there? You know who loves you more than mommy and daddy? It's Jesus. Jesus. I, I, can, I, can, I know that while she was still, she's wonderful, and she's also two. Any parents out there have two-year-olds or had two-year-olds? Yeah, so you know what I'm talking about. Original sin rears its head at two, strongly. You're like, oh, <laughs> you're selfish from birth. Like, <laughs> Like, why are you throwing a temper tantrum for no reason? Because you want to get what you want. You, I love you. While you are still that, while you still were throwing a temper tantrum because I didn't give you a second gummy, Christ died for you. God's determination to move before we do in these stories. Long before we were ever aware. It even goes on in Romans, further along in Romans 5. How much more did God's grace and the gift that came by grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many. Next slide. Let's take a look at some of these phrases. While we were still powerless, it went away. While we were yet sinners, while the sheep was lost, while the sun wasn't home, while the coin was nowhere to be found. God's determination to move before we do. Maybe we could say it like this. God's grace, his forgiveness, love, passion for you, however you would like to articulate it, it's true. It's been true. It's already true. It was true. And it will be true. It's a reality 
that exists independent of whether or not I affirm it. It's a reality that exists whether or not I choose to trust it. It's a free gift that's there and is true about who I am. And there are choices I can make to accept that reality or not. We do this in all sorts of places in our life. Things that are, we choose to pretend aren't. Every time you eat a McDonald's hamburger, every time you choose to ignore a whole lot of truth about just what the McDonald's hamburger is, a bomb. <laughs> CEO of McDonald's is here today. Great job. Grace and peace to you. It's a reality that exists independent of whether or not I affirm it. My affirming, trusting, accepting, whatever doesn't affect whether this is true or not. I don't make grace true because I repent and believe. I choose to come in line with it. I don't determine God's unmerited favor, its existence. I merely respond to it. If we miss this, we miss one of the most central components, who God is and what God has done for us. If we were going to trace through the Bible, in the Corinthians, to the church of Corinthians, uh, church in Corinth, the writer says, grace and peace to you from God. That's how he begins his letter. I got a few more. To the Galatians, grace and peace to you from God. To the Ephesians. Grace and peace to you from God. To the Philippians, apparently grace was a big deal. Apparently this is incredibly big. This is woven through the story of these revolutionary outposts of heaven that are popping up in the ancient world. Responding to this thing that's happened. The Messiah has come. The central uh, reality of the gospel that Jesus is somehow king and reigning over all. And so it begins with Jesus rising from the dead and, and, and announcing this is what the way of God looks like. You can come in line with it or not. And then this early church starts to do that. And as letters are being written and stories are being shared and communications being documented, you get all these snapshots of what it was like. And sometimes there's rebuke in the New Testament, right? There's, sometimes there's the like straight up, like, what are you guys doing you guys got these folks sleeping with these folks. That's not okay. That's not in line with Jesus. And it gets really like weird and specific. Sometimes it's these like grand just gestures of this is what God's posture is for you and he loves you. A lot of times there's call to how are you going to serve the poor and do this? How are you going to share your possessions and care for one another? What are you going to do when all these enemies are coming at you? We get all these snapshots that are sort of canonized in this authoritative picture of what the first church began to, to look like. And Almost every letter begins with grace to you. Thessalonians, to Timothy, to Titus, grace and peace to you. To Philemon, a small book, but still grace and peace to you from God. The last thing the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 13 is grace be with y'all. The Kentucky version. 
Grace be with you all. All these interactions in these letters, these snapshots of the revolution, grace is everywhere. Grace, grace, grace. Second Peter 1, 2 begins, he begins the letter with grace and peace be yours in abundance. Apparently some people grasp this grace and more and more it's taking over their life. So it's not just a static thing. Any of you who have the sense of like, oh, I know where he's going. Yeah, of course, we got to remember, like, God loves me no matter what. Cool. Candy crush. Those of you that are there right now, I would invite you to lift your head for a moment. Apparently, you can grow in grace. Apparently, grace is not just like a, a cognitive ascension to one idea. Apparently, we can, we can have more of it. Grace be yours in abundance. It's becoming more and more something that flows out of you. Let it affect you in more and more ways. Rest in it. You can rest in it. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Peter later in the letter talks about growing in grace. What would that look like? Let's pause for a second. What would that look like for you to trust that at the center of the universe... There's a God who created all things, right? Even statistically in our like post-Christian country, most people still believe in some sort of spirituality, God, right? Because it's just too hard to explain everything via um, like what we can see, touch, feel, all the other senses. So we, most people have this sense of some sort of spirituality and center, right? Where does love come from? How do we understand right and wrong? There's some impulse in me that isn't just made sense of what I can measure. All right, so given that, what if there was a personality at the center of the universe? In fact, let me just Santa Claus this situation, right? I'm going to have an imaginary friend. This imaginary friend is at the center of the universe who somehow created everything, actually loves me, is for me, has like forgiven me of stuff I didn't even know I did, has this posture for me, and wants to help me to live in like the flow of how things were meant to be, to be righteous, to be just, to be dialed into how things actually are. And there's something that I can do to respond to this grace, respond to like, I am loved no matter what I do. How does this, growing in that reality, how does that change you? What would it look like to grow in grace if you are married? To exhibit unmerited favor towards your spouse. What does that look like this morning? What fight did you get in on the way over? What does it look like to exhibit that after watching Presidential debates. Whew. Last week, I've had to exhibit a lot of inner grace. It's like such a gift that I'm a pastor. I like don't take to social media very often when I really want to. Oh, man. Whew. Anyone else feel this? Anyone else just tapped out, actually? Like, you're like, I don't even know what was being said because I get so furious watching this. I don't care what side of the political aisle you're on. Good Lord. So much to say. So many tangents being withheld right now. Grace, unmerited favor. What would it be like to live in light of trusting that? Trusting that the God of the universe who made you, his posture towards you is this. This is what caused some of the early Christians to love their enemy and lay down their life for those. This is what causes so many in my life that I've gotten to see good friend of mine, begin to actually be a person of great forgiveness and gratitude, even though life has dished her some of the worst stuff imaginable. 
eating disorder at 12. Dad left at four. Like absolutely like painful adolescence of being like the butt of every joke, being pushed down and pushed down. The only way that she felt like she could exhibit any kind of like power was to then turn and have a, this a really warped view of her own sexuality and then began to allow, use that to control others and control friend groups and control men. Winds up in 20s and just feeling so much resentment, all of a sudden having a moment of realizing truly in this existential way that I've been like given a, such like a bad hand. I was dealt an awful hand of cards. And you know what? I'm mad at the world. And the world owes me. And you know what? Outside of grace, the world owes her. Be honest. The only worldview that doesn't owe her in that moment is just like secular atheism, which would say it doesn't matter anyway. You get what you get. Good luck to you. No, 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 no. Like in this moment, over the last, over the last year, not moment, watching her transform. Just this message, grace, great. This is God's posture toward you. Even though she, all of a sudden, then realizing her own brokenness and the way she's responded, but also then being able to exhibit an undeserved favor and love toward others. That wasn't for everybody else. Half the people didn't even know the damage that they had done to her. No, 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 this was for her. Freedom in every full and thorough sense of the word began to take over. And we sometimes, we look at that story and we go, yeah, that's awesome, that's the power of the gospel because we're doing kind of all right, but we're snippy, we're angry, we're closed off, we're not free, we're agitated all the time. Our posture is one of stinginess, not generosity. We can grow in grace. Grace and peace to you, unmerited favor to you, be yours in abundance. Apparently you can have some of it, you can like acknowledge it, and then you can have like an abundance. You can have a lot of it. How does the Bible end? It ends with someone saying, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. The Bible ends with someone saying, grace be with you. So all sorts of people have said all sorts of things about grace. I want to go back to Capon for a second. I love his writings on the parables. He says this, it is the recognition that our whole life is out of our hands. And that if we ever live again, our life will be entirely the gift of some gracious shepherd. God finds us in the desert of death, not in the garden of improvement. And in the power of Jesus' resurrection, he puts on his shoulders rejoicing and brings us home. Capon saying essentially that grace is what happens when you wake up and realize your life belongs to something bigger. When you realize this, everything becomes a gift. God loves us already and has been there from the beginning. Jeremiah, right, says, like, before, um, before I ever formed you, I knew you. David, you knit me together in, your mother, in my mother's womb. There's a sense of, like, before you even could grasp any of this, grace. So part of the Christian life is about seeing what is already true, that God loves us already and then beginning to live in this relationship. It's about seeing what is already true. And it's about seeing more of it. You may have a very narrow view of this when we talk about growing in abundance. 
For you, maybe it's realizing the implications and you've only looked through this kind of hole. And for some of us, there may be a larger invitation here. Another writer says this, grace strikes us when year after year the longed-for perfection of life does not appear. When the old compulsions reign within us, right? We know this, the old compulsions, the old addictions, the old patterns that seem to never go away as they have for decades, when despair destroys all joy and courage, sometimes at that moment, a wave of light breaks into our darkness, and it is though a voice were saying, you are accepted. Accept the fact that you are accepted. This happens. We experience grace. You may not experience change overnight, but you will be transformed. Your posture changes forever. It has changed for me. It has changed for some of my closest friends who I see growing in grace. I'll just speak to my knowledge. Anecdotal as it may seem, I have a lot of it. I think for some of us, we need to hear things uh, this morning like, you are not just a disillusioned old man. You are not just a trapped businesswoman. You are not just a burned out college student. You may be near to brokenness, disillusionment, and despair. But you are not fundamentally, primarily those things. Counter to prevailing wisdom, counter to a secular worldview, counter to a spiritual worldview that causes you to do a bunch of stuff in order to get right with whatever deity. You are not just the sum of how you're feeling right now or even the sum of your experiences or the sum of your life stage. You are accepted with a sin-exposed heart. We can grab this with an acknowledgement of what's actually going on, God says we can begin to see this more clearly. 2 Corinthians 12, 9, my grace is enough for you. My power is at its best in weakness. My power is at its best in weakness. My grace is enough for you. The invitation is to receive. The invitation is to accept the grace that breaks in and grabs us. The invitation is to open the door to what's been scratching at our door. I think I told this story a couple of years ago. It's one of my favorite stories. Anne Lamont um, is a bit of a racy writer. I enjoy her reflections on faith. She talks about becoming a Christian. She talks about how through the mess of, uh, of just a broken sexual world, the mess of an abortion, the mess of, of a kind of a drug-filtered life, and the, and the mess of all of this, trying to make sense of her own story and who she was and having a son and, and trying to write and achieving this weird form of success and not knowing what to do with it all. She talks about a cat 
this feeling of a cat that's like following her. I must feel like, I know you all know that I hate cats, but this is like a positive cat story. It's the only one you'll ever get. <laughs> feeling of a cat, like, like wherever she goes, right? Like in her periphery, she's like walking down the street and it's like, backs off. And so this cat sort of is her, her little metaphor for God, feeling over and over like this cat's just following every situation. It's like how it seems to rear its head. And all the stubbornness in her heart, she in every way embodies like everything that stereotypically like would be against Christianity. And so this chapter ends, her conversion experience is, uh, is finally, like she hits her bottom. She hits the moment where she owns the wreckage of her life, owns the brokenness inside her, owns the places of need and insecurity in her own heart. And her conversion moment is wrapped up in one sentence, which I can't actually say here, but is, uh, F it, you can come in. I love that. It's like, all right, all right, all right. Come on in. And opens the door. Like this consistent, persistent. One writer calls, calls God like the hound of heaven. God just keeps coming at you, keeps running up the road who's going out for the lost. And in some mysterious way, we're told in scriptures that God has, in a way, already done this. He continues to do it for you personally, but it's in light of the reality that it has already been done. Will you accept? There's an invitation here to receive. To receive. So, um, on Mondays, I, uh, it's my day off. I take a Sabbath. I uh, turn my ringer off, and uh, my wife puts, uh, wakes up early. She goes into work on Monday. She puts my daughter Harper in the bed with me. It's really early, like 7.30 or so. Really early for me. Some of you are like, please. And, and so we lay there. And, and she, she's a little different around. She always prefers mommy, you know, like in general. But she's just way more, like she always default to ask for mommy. But something about when mommy's out of the room She's just way chiller, way less emotions, less feels when she's just with daddy. And it's all comes up, Andrew, maybe it's just because I only have her like fully one day a week, where she's like, daddy, wake up. Okay. She comes over, literally just gives me a hug, and we'll just lay there, and we'll tell stories. It's like idyllic. I, I know this is going to end at any day, but I'm holding on. We get up. We get dressed. We have the same routine. She gets in the stroller. Uh, and we walk, and we walk. We live over on the west side, and so we walk to Seven Stars, a bakery coffee shop there. Uh, in fact, a few baristas who are here uh, in our community work often that day, and they know to have a blueberry muffin queued up, literally. They're like, oftentimes it is ready for us. We walk in, and they'll see a barista run over, and like, Harper. So she'll get the blueberry muffin. Uh, I was going to post a picture of it. It's just like this. It's the big muffin, little hands, adorable, just And, uh, and that's when she can walk. Um, so we, we, we are in the stroller just so it doesn't take us, you know, 20 minutes to get to the coffee shop. So we, and then we walk from the, 
coffee shop to Julian's, which is a breakfast place that's less than a block away. This is our routine. So she's eating the muffin. I get a coffee. We walk to Julian's, and we go in, and we sit down, and sure enough, the waitress there, uh, we usually, nine out of ten times, always get, uh, knows that uh, she's, she's going to get some scrambled eggs ready for Harper. It's adorable. Put a plate down so she can mix the salt and pepper on her plate. She likes to pour them out, make shapes. So we're sitting there on a normal Monday. She's making shapes. Eggs just come out. Uh, I order some food. We're sitting there. Uh, and we notice there's some friends that are, are sitting in the restaurant as well. Uh, we say hi. Um, I was, they're wonderful people, and I get really excited to see, to see them any other day other than Monday. Uh, Monday's the day I just really, if you ever see me and I seem kind of like grumpy on Monday, it's not that I'm actually grumpy, I just don't want to talk to you. Like, I'm, I'm just, I'm an introvert. I'm an introvert. I know most people don't think I am, but I actually, I'm high eye, so I, Monday's is my refueling day. I want to spend time with Harper. I want to read. I want to not talk to you. Um, <laughs> love you every other day. So, I'm sitting there, and we have a normal, great exchange, and it's great, and, um, and so, and I try to keep like, what I order fairly modest, um, and I say that only um, because if, how many of you are in a relationship and you're the big spender in the relationship? Okay. How many of you have a credit card uh, that your, your spouse or other person in a relationship, they see what you buy? Yeah, so I have to be careful because um, my wife is a good steward of our funds and I'm the celebrator. That's how I like to say it. I like to celebrate. It's Monday, it's Sabbath, baby. God is good. Grace, let's order an omelet. Four mimosas. Let's do this, right? Um, I've never ordered four mimosas at Julian's. We, uh, so I'm sitting there and I order a, I don't remember what I ordered that day, something really modest though. And we're eating. And I just, we just sit there and there's no time. We don't have to rush out. It's great. My friends get up and leave. Uh, and I notice when it comes time for the bill, the waitress is like kind of messing around with it and takes it and brings it back. And uh, she comes back over and and uh, so what's what's going on? And she's like, "Oh, your your friends paid paid for the bill." Like, oh man, that's 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 amazing. Like, and 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 so at, f- at first th- there was a there was a sense of uh, I don't know if, about you, but when I receive something. I, it's taken me a long time to like get to a place where I have a healthy culture of being able to receive. I immediately am like, oh, well, next time I see them in a restaurant, like, I'll get them, right? Or, or, or somebody like, invites you over and has a special meal, and you feel like really compelled to make sure you return the favor, right? Most, some of it's just politeness, but a lot of it is like, well, well you've done this for me. I've got to do this for you. Oh, no, 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 don't, right? It's why we even pretend. It's like, no, no, don't give that to me. No, 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 I don't, I don't need that, right? When the server comes over, tells me, explains to me, check has been paid for, like all the server is doing is alerting me to what's already been true for a little while now. They had left like 25 minutes. They've been gone. We've been sitting there, right? Which then made me kind of you know, frustrated that I didn't order the extra omelet and the four mimosas. She's informing me of what's already true, what's been true for the last 30 minutes. And there's a kind of like, almost like a, a hopelessness, like I can't do anything. I just got to accept this. I just got to enjoy this. In fact, now I actually can order the extra mimosa because only that one will show up on the bill. Make it sound like I order mimosas at lunch on Monday. 
To accept and enjoy is an odd feeling. To accept that you're accepted, that you might like, you might not be like a totally different person, but there's something about that that transforms you in that moment. So a few things. Maybe you've been carrying around a bunch of stuff for years, so long as you can remember. Maybe you have some stuff that's eating you alive, that's affecting everything. And you need to hear while you are still lost, he's done it. Jesus on the cross, right, says it is finished. In the Greek, basically the term is paid in full. Paid in full. I wonder sometimes if God is looking at all our junk that we're carrying around. All the baggage and all the insecurities and all the weight and all the sin. And just says to us, I'm not bringing this up again and again and again. Why are you? I'm not, you don't, I'm not bringing this up again and again. You keep bringing it. You could be free of this. Name it. That's how all these stories end and turn back to me. Repent. Yeah, it's not even confess. It's just repent. Just turn, turn. Knowledge. Broken and contrite heart is what God desires. Just acknowledging it and then stepping in, turning around and heading toward God who accepts you, changing your posture, reorienting yourself towards that which is true. So this morning, you were given a check. It should be in your bulletin if you didn't open your bulletin. You should have one of these. Maybe there are some things on your bill. Maybe you need to write them down and deal with the fact that you can trust grace. Maybe you need to write some things down on your bill. Maybe you need to write like a lot of stuff down. Like, I've had this sense that there are all sorts of people in our community who are fascinated with Jesus. Who've been coming to church and they have this sense of freedom. They're just like genuinely glad they have friends that are pursuing like the way of love. You've been on this journey. You've been experiencing more light and freedom. I get the sense there's a lot of people like that here. And I felt like we need to have a Sunday where we just really specifically invite you to say yes. Like you just need to become a Christian like right now today. And for some of us, it has been a long time. In fact, we know so much about God. It's been a while since we've really like stepped in and walked the life of God meditated on, allowed our disciplines to be shaped by that which is true. And for some of us, the invitation this morning is to say yes to the abundance of grace. Peter says, grow in grace. All sorts of language that people use in church service, especially evangelical circles, right? Born again, salvation. Maybe today you just need to become follower of Jesus and just say yes because grace pays the bill because grace pays the bill that's how God's economy works maybe on this check you just need to write like my life <clears throat> right You're like I don't have time to reflect on all that stuff like you just need to go like yeah kind of everything I would love to trust that that's true you don't need to have it all figured out 
There's a posture of beginning to simply accept to let the light in of who the God of the universe says that you are. Maybe today when you come up to take communion or at this ultimate picture of grace, <clears throat> you just need to place this down. You just need to place it on the floor. You need to place it up here on the altar. Maybe you need to come up and just sit. There'll be some folks that would love to pray for you. You come up and just say, yeah, yeah, I want to trust that whatever's happening in your heart, whatever's happening in your heart, all of this does not change God's posture toward you. Maybe today we just need to say yes. Yes to more of grace. Yes for the first time to grace. You need to put it down. You need to take the bread and the cup maybe for the first time today and walk out knowing it's paid for. Walk out without pain. This is the divine like chew and screw. <laughs> this is the go in and order everything on the menu and escape out the back door. Sort of. As we enter the season of Lent, what we're going to do is deep dive into wrestling with all the bits of us that, that are broken and twisted as we take a season to kind of emphasize and look at the ways, the inner journey of being made new. We need to make sure that we recognize that in reality, we are on the other side of Easter. We are on the other side of the cross. That we are people who are covered by grace. It's finished. It's paid in full. Before we come up, I'm going to invite the servers if they'd like to come up now. I want to end with this last story. The writer Brendan Manning tells a story about a woman who had been having visions of Jesus. The local archbishop comes to find out about this woman, and he thinks, she's crazy. Who is this woman who's been having these visions? He can't have any of that. <laughs> the archbishop says, have you been, so he, the archbishop comes to this woman and says, have you been having visions about Jesus? The woman says, yes. So she doesn't not back down, so the archbishop says, okay, okay, here's what I want you to do. Next time you have one of your visions of Jesus, I want you to ask Jesus a question. Okay, the woman says, I want you to ask Jesus what sins I confessed the last time I went to confession. So this, this, this archbishop is like, you got to be kidding me. Like, knock it off. You're jacking up the community. You're being really weird. Who's having visions of Jesus? All right, so if this is really true, this is really true. Ask Jesus next time you see him, what did I confess? Like creating this little, like, trap. <laughs> the woman says, fair enough, and the archbishop leaves. A little while later, he hears rumors about the woman having visions again. So he returns to the woman and says, have you been having visions? The woman says, yep. I've been having a vision about Jesus almost every night. And he says, well, did you remember? And the woman says to the bishop, yes, I did remember. Then she took the archbishop's hand in hers, and she said, I asked Jesus what sins you confessed the last time you went to confession. Jesus' exact words were, I don't remember. 
don't remember. Let's pray. For those of us who have a hard time receiving, just accepting what is, not being good enough, strong enough, smart enough, more productive, just accepting who they are and who you say that they are. I pray, Lord, in this moment for a freedom, a freedom, shoulders to be let down, to trust what you have done, Lord, on the cross for every single person in this room, the greatest act of love the world has ever seen, the God of the universe dying on the cross, taking the sin of the world on his shoulders, and in some literal and mysterious and mystical way, all swirled into one is somehow removed. Remove the sin and shame. It says in your scriptures, Lord, you came to seek and to save the lost. So those that are the lost coin, the lost sheep, the lost son, we thank you that you have come to seek and to save us. For those that need to grow in grace, abundance grow in grace. Lord, may we receive a word from you if we haven't already. Lord, for those who are here and need to say yes to you, who are like, yeah, yeah, I've been, I've been here for a while. I just would like, I want to become a Christian. I want to, I want to begin to walk this journey. I want to say yes to this. This moment, like right, like right now, like in one, two, three, like this moment here be the moment where we go, yeah, yeah, God, I want to accept that that is true about me, that you have done this. I want to, as the, as the verses say, repent and believe, I want to turn back to you. I acknowledge I am broken. My propensities are all out of whack so often that so much has been done to me and so much I have done and that you have forgiven me. I want to set my feet on a new path. And so in this moment, if you need to say yes, loudly, yes, under your breath, raise your hand, tap your neighbor, whatever, just, to just own physically this moment, would you say yes? Thank you, Lord, that you pay the bill. In your name we pray.